Hi, good evening and welcome tonight to what I'm sad to say is the last in our series of Six Ideas to Change the World, which we've been really happy to partner with Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust. Money has to go somewhere and where you invest it, how you invest it is incredibly important to us and to the future of the planet. So it's really great when you see an investment company doing positive things and making sure that whatever they invest in is not actively harming the planet, which a lot are. But we've had a great journey on our six ideas. We have covered food with Henry Dimbleby. We've covered water. We've covered migration with the wonderful Gaia Vince. And after the summer break, we also did a whole thing about youth activism with Maya Rose Craig. And then just a few weeks ago, we did a piece about plastics. And now tonight, I'm incredibly pleased that our last big idea is going to be about heat. Uh, this is, could not be more appropriate for this particular year that the world has lived through. But the author that we're going to be talking to is Jeff Goodall, and his book is called the heat will kill you first, life and death on a scorched planet. Um, I read it a few months ago and actually I was completely gobsmacked by it. It had a lot of ideas in it and a lot of facts and information that I thought I have never seen this or heard this or understood this before. And I have been running around telling everyone I know since then. And tonight I'm unbelievably happy to be able to present Jeff to you. His previous book was The Water Will Come, which was a pretty much the same sort of idea except about water and I'm in the middle of reading that now and it's terrific I can't recommend both of them highly enough and I'm also really happy to say that in conversation with Jeff this evening is going to be Justin Rowlett who is the BBC's first ever climate editor so you probably know him from the news he's frequently on a glacier he's frequently at a climate conference he's frequently studying rivers in bad states but constantly he brings us all the news and I can't think of anyone better to be in conversation with Jeff tonight so please welcome them and thank you all very much indeed for joining us and the format is simple they'll be talking for about 30-40 minutes but put your questions in even before that when we come to you because if the questions are very part of the conversation that they're in the middle of, Justin may well come to them right then and there. So do start putting them into the Q&A and sit back and enjoy it. Yes, and I would I would stress that, yeah, we're really keen to get the questions. We want to, you, we want to put your questions uh, to Jeff. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you'll, you know, we'll be, that some of the themes that Jeff explores will unfold as we have our discussion, but I'm sure you can anticipate some of the issues and areas um, this is a book that's incredibly wide ranging. You kind of, the heat will kill you first. You kind of feel, well, I kind of know where that's going. And let me tell you, you don't. Greg, uh, Jeff takes you to places that you're not expecting. We do, I mean, he covers kind of every conceivable an angle of the way that heat is affecting us and our society. Physiology, agriculture, economics, glaciology, climate science, fluid dynamics, uh, you know, disease, uh, forecasting, you know, you name it, he covers it. And I should say on that point that uh, that Rosie made about the timeliness of, of this event, um, in, at the risk of breaking, well, I am going to break the embargo, um, one of the big weather forecasting um, organisations, the um, Copernicus, which is the European kind of satellite and climate, uh, weather, weather and climate uh, body, is tomorrow going to announce that it is now almost 
uh, uh, certain that this will be the hottest year ever recorded. And when you see the graphs, you'll see this is by some margin. So October will be the hottest October ever, as September was the hottest September ever. And this will be, as I say, the hottest year ever recorded. So another kind of landmark in our the world's progression towards a hotter planet. Jeff, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Thank you for writing this excellent book. I'm going to start uh, with one of the concepts that you bring up right at the beginning, and it's the one that hooked in Rosie Boycott, and it was this idea that human beings have a kind of heat superpower. Tell me what that is and why it's been so much so important for the kind of success of humanity as a species. Sure. Um, Rosie, thank you for that nice, kind introduction. And Justin, it's great to be in conversation with you. Um, I have great respect for all the work you've done. And it's great to have a conversation with somebody who is so knowledgeable. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this. So, yeah, one of the things that, you know, distinguishes human beings from virtually every other living thing on the planet is our ability to regulate our own temperatures so precisely. And we have you know, a mechanism th that allows us to do that. Um, you know, we we are the only animal that can really, that has this mechanism of sweating that we can do as we move around that evolutionarily had a big uh, advantage for us because we were able to, you know, run and sweat and keep our body temperature at um, uh, this in within this sort of very precise range that it needs to be in. And that allowed us, I mean, you think about um, animals and like your dog, for example, when you take your dog out for a run, it runs and runs, but then it gets hot and overheated and has to lay down and pant and then it cools off and then it can run again. We humans have developed the capacity to modulate our body temperature while we're on the move. And that gave us huge advantages in the past. But it, and it's also meant, though, that our bodies have evolved to um, maintain, to work in a fairly narrow temperature range. You know, we, as everyone knows, if you get sick and you go to the, the doctor, the first thing they want to ask is, do you have a temperature? And so for all the metabolic functions of our body uh, and for all of our general health, keeping our internal body temperature in this narrow range is really important. And that in a very simple, basic way, and we can talk about what happens when it gets out of that, is why heat is such a threat to us, because it pushes us out of what I call in the book, our Goldilocks zone, where we where this range of temperatures, which all living things have, but we have in a very precise way where our body functions best. And when we get out of that zone, we get into big trouble. And, and that you discuss quite early on the book. You've got a really eye-popping story about a young family who, it's in California, isn't it? Yeah. Who go for a walk one morning. And, I mean, describe to me what they did and the circumstances of what they did. And I think what comes across really strongly in the book is, I mean, I was reading, thinking, God, I can really imagine, um, you know, embarking on that journey, even with, they go with their... Uh, sort of baby, young infant child. Um, tell us what they did and, and then what happened and what that tells us about our physiology and the limits of our ability to endure intense heat. Yeah, so one of the things that I really wanted to underscore in this book, you know, I mean, I've been a climate journalist for 20 years and I had never really thought about the, uh, about the sort of active danger of heat to our bodies. I knew, of course, about 
you know, I mean, obviously it's in the phrase global warming. Heat has been, is, is the central force that, that, you know, um, is driving all of the, the sort of um, climate impacts. But I, I had never really thought about it as, as an active force that could kill you in hours. Um, and this story of this family that you mentioned that I opened the chapter with, I really wanted to tell this story because I think it really illustrates that. And uh, it was a, it's a story of Jonathan Garish, a 45-year-old man, um, and his wife, Ellen Chung, who was 30, and they had a one-and-a-half-year-old child. And um, they had he was a software engineer in Silicon Valley, and during the pandemic, they moved up to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. They were young, youngish, healthy, outdoorsy people, um, and they had bought this new house uh, in, in Mariposa, the small town in the foothills, and they were exploring the world around them, and they went out for a hike. Um, they planned to hike on a hot summer day in California. It was forecast to be over 100 degrees. The night before they went for a hike, uh, Jonathan uh, had a conversation with his brother, who lives in Scotland, who said uh, it, it just came up in their conversation that it was going to be hot in California the next day and to be careful. And Jonathan said, yes, yes, I understand. Don't worry, we're bringing water, we're leaving early. So just for, obviously, you know that we use uh, centigrade ourselves. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. But let me I'm just sorry. translate that for people. That's about 38 degrees. Yeah. So I was jokingly going to say like a normal British summer, but obviously we did experience temperatures in excess of that for the first time ever last year. But yeah, 38 right. degrees centigrade. Yeah, sorry. I'm always forgetting like which time zone or which hemisphere and things yeah. I'm in. Um, yeah, so it was 38, 39, something like that was the forecast. And they went out, for, they left for a hike early in the morning. Uh, they left at 7.30. Um, uh, they hiked like four miles, uh, you know, what, six, seven kilometers down a uh, to a canyon uh, to where there was a river. They hung out down there. We know from selfies on their cameras that they were fine. And then they, around noon, they began to hike out. And what they apparently did not know was that to get out of this canyon, they had to hike up a about a three and a half kilometer, four kilometer um, south facing slope that the year before had been burned in a wildfire. So there was no shade. And the precise um, account of what happened to them as they began to climb out, we don't really know. You can read about my reconstruction of it in the book, but the short version is they didn't come home that night. Their friends and family became concerned in the morning. They called the sheriff's department. The sheriff went out with a search party. They eventually found the entire family, the, the Jonathan 45, Ellen 30, the one and a half year old daughter and their dog dead on the trail. And they could but not understand. Initially, they were thinking there must be foul play and they were right. exploring crazy things. Like obviously this was an area that was mined during the gold rush and maybe a sort of a belch of kind of not, not toxic, toxic air might have come up from one of the old workings. Um, I mean, they, they they really didn't know what had happened, did they? Right, because, you know, they, they didn't know what had happened. They thought it was maybe some kind of family suicide or some terrible thing like that or algae uh, in the water that they had drank. No one thought about heat and that heat could kill a family like this dead on the trail, you know, together in this way. And eventually it, it took them actually a month and a half of investigation before they kind of put all the pieces together and realized, no, this was 
they all died of heat stroke on this exertion, on this climb up this uh, mountainside on a hot day. And the reason I really wanted to tell this story in the opening of the book is that it really underscores that the risks of extreme heat are not just something that happens to, you know, outdoor workers and, um, you know, farm workers or, or people who have heart anything. conditions or something. I mean, it, it can kill anyone in a few hours. And, and that's why I called my book, The Heat Will Kill You First. I really wanted this this story that I'm telling in this book to make it feel personal, to really underscore the risks to you and me and everyone that we know and love right now. Because um, I think too much writing and reporting about climate change is off in the distance and about people in faraway places and couched in terms of by like by 2050 X is going to happen or something like that. And the the reality that this is happening now and the danger to your life is really something that I think gets lost a lot in how we think about and report about climate. And so that's that's why I titled the book what I titled it, even though some people at my publishing house said that's no one's going to read that book. Uh, it's too scary. But in fact, it is scary. And it's not doomer. I'm not a doomer in any sense, but it is scary because the world we're living in is scary. And I really wanted to underscore that. And this story begins to do that. Well, I think what you've done really interestingly is you then you go from the event, the death, and then you go into the kind of the science, the physiology of why heat can kill you. And just on that subject, I should say, I think three years ago during really an, another heat wave, not the record heat wave, but a um, uh, another heat wave. I went out with the um, with an ambulance uh, in the UK in Birmingham, which not a particularly hot city, and uh, we came across. Um, there were two young boys who uh, suffered heat stroke and needed to be taken to hospital. So this isn't something that just happened. I mean, obviously, California to us, I have to say, uh, it's it's quite quite exotic, Jeff. But you know, no, this can happen in places as boring as Solihull. So, um, yeah. you know, this really is something that can, you know, we can all be affected by this if we're not careful. So what is it about heat that presents such a, 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 you know, a, a existential challenge for things? Well, there's two things about heat that are, um, you know, difficult to, for, uh, for us to. Yes. Can you hear me? Uh, are are we are can you hear me i hope you can your your screen is frozen is that justin's screen that's frozen uh, i hear you fine rosie okay well get, go on with your answer then until justin picks up okay. he was okay the, the, the physiology of heat and why it's so yeah so for the first thing about heat that makes it risky is the fact that it's invisible right so the, mm -hmm. you know we know not to walk out in a hurricane because the trees are bent in half and, and roofs are flying. And so we have a visual sense of the risk. With heat, we don't. I'm looking out my window here in Texas. I can't tell if it's 25C or 35C. There's no visual clues. So I go out and I can do, I can get in trouble very quickly because it doesn't register psychologically with me. But it also has a very profound impact on our bodies. And this, what I talked about in the early in the opening in Justin's first question is about how important it is for our bodies to maintain a stable temperature. And we have this really great mechanism called sweating, which I described, but that only works so far. I mean, sweat 
will you know cools you off what happens when your body starts to overheat is your heart starts pounding faster because it, what it wants to do is get your blood toward the surface of your skin where that evapotranspiration is happening where the heat is being taken away and that cools off your blood and that works fine as long as the conditions are not too extreme either you're working hard and generating heat in your own body by exercise running or mm -hmm. something like that or hiking in the case of that family or the outside temperatures are really extreme but if your body cannot cool down if the sweating does not you know evaporate and take away enough heat then your internal body temperature starts rising and as, as your internal body temperature starts rising your heart starts pounding faster and faster. If you have any circulatory issues, any heart issues, you're immediately vulnerable. Most people who die of heat stroke die early on from um, heart attacks or other circulatory problems. But if you have a, a strong heart um, and you can, your body temperature keeps rising, your heart starts pounding faster and faster. And eventually you get to the point where at around 103, 104 degrees, Fahrenheit, which I'm sorry, I can't translate that into Celsius on the fly, but, but 41, um, 42. Yeah. Then the actual membranes of the cellular structures in your body begins to actually melt, to denature. And that is, uh, your body kind of starts to unravel from the inside. And that process can be stopped if you cool off quickly, if you jump in a lake or if you go to a hospital and you're packed in ice or something like that but it's but it's it's not reversible and that's why even uh, people who don't die of heat stroke can have permanent damage especially to their kidneys and other internal organs so you know death by heat stroke is a kind of horror story really it's a it's a kind of melting from within and one of the things i tried to do in the book was really you know talk about that process and really what heat does to our bodies and how fragile we really are to these extreme temperatures. Um, we are not meant to live in these extreme heat zones and, and heat is just, you know, very quickly deadly to us for these reasons. And then you go on, because, I mean, there are many, many directions we could take, but let's talk a bit about the kind of differential way in which heat falls on different people. And there are quite a few chapters actually across the book that deal with this kind of, what's more of a kind of social justice issue, isn't it? Um, and um, I mean, let's talk about that fact that, and you, you actually visit some really compelling examples of people who have really differential experiences of heat. So tell, tell me a bit about the kind of, um, the social justice challenges that heat poses for communities. Let's start in America, shall we? Yeah, well, I mean, in the in the book, I, I kind of broadly characterize it as the cooled and the damned, right? So, I mean, there's a very strong dividing line and, and you can look at it a lot of different ways. First of all, there's people who are um, outdoor workers and do not have access to cooling places. And then, then there's people like me who work inside and have a, a job where I can work inside. For me, as long as I'm working inside, you know, when it's a really hot day here in Texas, I'm not vulnerable like the guy or the woman who's working on the highway on the black asphalt and, and you know, out in that heat all day long without any kind of, you know, legal protection for water and shade breaks and things. So there's an immediate 
separation of vulnerability in people who have access to cooling places and people who who do not. And you know that's a very you know um, kind of class and and wealth uh, dividing line also in the U.S. Um, I write about a farm worker, for example, who died during a heat stroke in Oregon uh, during a heat wave in Oregon in 2021 and you know he was basically he was from guatemala and he had lived in a hot climate you know in my book i talk about people who are kind of heat savvy who know what to do in heat who know that you need to get out of the heat who know you need to drink water who who understand the risks of it and he was one of those people he had talked to his mom the night before about the fact that he was working out in a field on on a hot on a hot day during this heat heat wave and she told him to be careful. And he said, mom, I will. But he went out in the field and he was working. And because at that time, there were no worker protection laws about heat. He was forced with making the decision about, do I keep working out in this field? Um, he, he was moving irrigation pipes around. Or do I take a break, go sit in the shade for 20 minutes, cool off, and then come out? And he decided... That if he took a break, he was likely to get fired and he couldn't have, he didn't want to get fired. He was trying to save money for his house. So he risked it and he thought he would be okay. And he wasn't. So one of, and he died in the field. One of the big dividing lines is between people like that and people who have to take these kinds of risks. There's other dividing lines also, like in every city in the world, if you go to the richer neighborhoods, you will see more green space more big trees, you go to poorer neighborhoods in virtually every city in the world, um, you see more concrete, more asphalt, less parks, less trees. Um, Rosie and I were just talking before we, we went on this about in these images of Gaza that we're seeing right now and how full of concrete it is, how you see very little trees. It's, it's a landscape of heat in addition to now, of course, a landscape of war and terror. But um, it's a great example of the kind of urban structures that are not built with any kind of heat resilience in, in mind. And for people who don't have access to air conditioning, you know, this makes these landscapes deadly. Um, I spent a lot of time in Phoenix uh, dealing with, uh, um, riding around with uh, ambulance crews and others who were dealing with homeless people uh, on the streets um, who were dying of heat stroke because they had nowhere to go. So there's, you know, there's many dividing lines. There's also the dividing line of health. People who have heart conditions, people who are older are much more vulnerable to extreme heat than younger people. Um, there's dividing line pregnant women, um, people who are on certain kinds of diuretics, certain kinds of medications are more vulnerable. So, you know, heat is predatory. Heat kills people who are the most vulnerable first. And that's what makes it such a social justice issue. And there's really interesting stuff towards the end of the book about how, I mean, moving on to slightly more positive subject, how cities can begin to adapt and become more livable. You've got a great example. You've got a couple of great examples. And one of the ones that stands out is Singapore. What have they done in Singapore, which is obviously a modern city. When we picture Singapore, we picture huge concrete tower blocks, glass tower blocks. Um, how have they managed to kind of adapt their climate, their environment to, uh, to, 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 to cope with raising high, um, increasing temperatures? 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, I'll talk about Singapore in a moment, but I, I really want to underscore that one of the things about heat is that, you know, no one needs to die from it. I mean, no one needs to be working out in a field without having a water break. We don't, you know, we've built our cities, you know, for a climate that no longer exists. And so there are these, you know, deserts of heat and, um, uh, where there's no consideration on everything from the bus stops to the black asphalt that we use in the streets to how cities are designed. Well, and actually, and so, you make a point in there's a section on the kind of history of air conditioning, which doesn't sound very interesting, but it's a really good chapter. And one of the points you make in that is that air conditioning has actually encouraged us to build totally inappropriate homes on the basis that there's an assumption that we'll always have the power to be able to fire up our air conditioner and therefore we can make places that are inherently unlivable livable and it and and the point you make there's a really vivid story about a um uh, uh, uh an old people's home where the air conditioning breaks down and very very quickly we're talking hours the place becomes unlivable and in fact the temperature inside the home is quite rapidly goes it's it's higher than the temperature outside yeah, air conditioning, you know, I could talk about air conditioning for the next 12 hours. It's so interesting and complicated. Um, and air conditioning is obviously a tool that allows us to live in hotter climates and is really a tool that saves lives, but it's also a tool for, uh, you know, relatively wealthy, relatively elite people. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, I in my book tour in the last few months, I, I get a lot of questions that basically come down to well, yeah, heat's a problem, but we have a fix for it, and that's air conditioning. We just need <clears throat> to get air conditioning to more people. And that's a very naive and simplistic notion about how to think about air conditioning and what to do about heat, because you know there are billions of people on the planet who do not have air access to air conditioning, and for all intents and purposes, are never going to have access to air conditioning. And then there's all the other aspects of it, um, that we can talk about later if we want, but about, you know, we're not going to air condition the oceans, we're not going to air condition, you know, the Amazon, we're not going to air conditioning, air condition the land where our food crops are grown. So there's all well, kinds of other aspects of it. Air conditioning but, only is moving heat from one place to another. So you're taking right. it inside your house and you're pumping out into somebody else's space. So it's really, right. uh, and that's cut, there's another social injustice there, isn't there? And actually, right. having I lived in India for four years, you really notice the output from the air conditioning raising the temperature on the back streets, which is where the poor people tend to bit live and 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 uh, and work. And it yeah, they absolutely contribute to this heat urban heat island effect, where you know the uh, temperatures in cities is you know five or six C hotter than it is in the surrounding area. But I want to go back to your point about how we build buildings because it's really true that you know I live in Texas right now and in. Texas is a very hot place and people before air conditioning obviously lived here and they understood how to build in a hot climate. They would build what they call dog trot houses where they had these open breezeways in between um, in between rooms so that the wind could come through and cool them off. <clears throat> they had high ceilings. They had transoms that opened up yeah. to let ventilation go through. They had porches. And they, they had windows out. at the back and the front so you could direct a right. wind through the building and use the heat of the building to draw cooler air through. It's really clever. Absolutely. They were able to make, you know, ice in the Middle East, you know, a thousand years ago because they understood how to move air around and cool it off and run it over water underground and things like that. But with air conditioning, you know, it's it it, it, it invited 
the creation of, of all of this kind of really cheaply, cheaply uh, built and, you know, simply designed architecture, these kind of glass towers of offices and, and, and homes that are, there's no ventilation. It's just um, an air conditioning unit. And you just turn that on and then you set the house to whatever temperature or the building to whatever temperature you want. And then, you know, that's it. And there's no more thought about ventilation, no more thought about how we design with sunlight or wind or anything like that. And I, in the book, I call air conditioning a technology of forgetting because it's encouraged us to forget all of this wisdom of building. And and one thing that I wanted to say to about air conditioning to wrap this up is that it's not, and it's not just about like, you know, having forgotten how to build this stuff because we really have it. I had a really interesting conversation a week or two ago with one of the top architects in the world, many very famous guy. I don't want to name, name his name because it was a dinner conversation and everything. But I said, look, you know, why you build great buildings? Can't you build great buildings and houses? And, you know, he builds museums and libraries and all kinds of things without air conditioning. And, and you know, this is insane. And he said, of course we can. I hate air conditioning. I don't want to put it in any building I build. Um, but my clients demand it. Um, they're addicted to comfort. They're addicted to the idea that what's going to, you know, they want to control the temperature to be, you know, whatever they find comfortable. And that's their kind of God-given right. So it's a, it's, air conditioning is a very complex problem. Um, and then not to, to mention. Yeah. Well, an issue, to, I wanted to flag up something. It comes back to an issue that isn't probably in the purview of our discussion today, which is the, you know, the price of energy you know, allows us to do things that, frankly, we shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, we, we, you know, as you say, we can't, I mean, the building I work in was impossibly expensive building the BBC bill, for example, in the centre of London, basically doesn't have any air, I mean, it does have a backup air conditioning system, but most of it's natural flows of air through, through the building, obviously in a temperate country, which makes it a lot easier, but it can be done, but it's more expensive, but energy, the energy price is sending us a signal to suggest that things are possible, which frankly, objectively, we shouldn't be doing. Yeah, and a lot of these buildings, mean, I've been told this by a number of architects, a lot of these sort of famous glass tower buildings were built in this era of cheap oil and cheap electricity from fossil fuels. And, you know, they're not sustainable in a, with a, in a kind of higher energy price world. Um, I mean, obviously, newer buildings designed with solar panels and battery packs and different kinds of ventilation are, are entirely different thing. But there's a whole generation of urban structures that were designed with cheap energy prices in mind and are no longer workable in, uh, in a world where that's not true. And although we've seen record temperatures, 40 degrees Celsius last year, um, we are still a temperate country with with you know with with a, a pleasant uh climate you know we're in the goldilocks zone as you call it but we've built um all these cheap glass uh, apartment buildings in in most of our cities not just in london but across the country which are heat intolerant they're okay in winter but in summer they overheat and it's a huge problem and lots of people are buying them and finding they're unsellable because they are unlivable many of them because of the way they've been designed and because what they wasn't anticipated how big an issue heat would be it are it's not possible to adapt them for air conditioning so you're trapped in this fish tank with the sun shining in and they get incredibly hot i mean you know this is not something that that people can had it had really anticipated absolutely and that's why and they're death traps during extreme heat waves because not only do people 
have people not anticipated it? And are they trapped in these buildings that don't work in these conditions is that they don't know what to do? You know, there's no clear idea about what to do when the heat rises and how to, you know, where to go and how to deal with, with extreme heat. So the lack of sort of knowledge about the risks just amplifies everything you're talking about. Now, look, I've, you know, uh, I've been so absorbed in the conversation that to be honest, I haven't been looking at all the loads of questions have come in and I feel a bit guilty that we haven't come to them. Um, I'm going to address some of them. I was going to, I was actually going to move on. And if we get time, I'm planning to do this to some of the kind of, there's a brilliant chapter where you talk about the, how slippery the concept of heat is and how little was understood until really amazingly recently, like the last 150 years, we actually did not understand what heat was. And there's a there's a character who really you should your next book should be a biography of Rumsford, this amazing, amazing character. But I'm just going to tease that because I'm going to go to some of our questions now. And if we get time, we'll come back to Rumsford. Otherwise, guys, you have to buy the book and find out about him for yourself. Picking up on what we were discussing, um, uh, somebody is saying a lot of new builds are just concrete, which is what we were saying. How do we change this? How do we make cities? And this is a question that we didn't actually get to the answer of. How do we make cities um, more livable? And and there is there is a, quite a lot in your book about that. I mean, and coming back to the example of Singapore, um, and, and there are other examples too. What can we do uh, to make cities more livable? Well, the first le level of things is, you know, is pretty simple. I mean, obvious things like creating more shade spaces, more greenery, more natural, you know, bringing nature back into cities. Um, virtually every city in the world in a hot place is undergoing a massive tree planting campaign, which is wonderful in many ways. And trees are really important, but also complicated in many ways because they're often planting the wrong kind of trees or um trees that aren't matched with the climate that's coming and trees you know they get celebrated a lot when they get planted but then people just walk away and they don't there's no money to water them and for example in phoenix arizona they had a big tree planting campaign that's gone on for more than a decade and you know the trees that they've planted have lived an average of six years you know because they're just neglected and so there's things like that that are important solutions, green spaces, more parks, you know, what Paris is doing, uh, you know, shutting down um, the inner city to uh, vehicle, you know, in, to cars and vehicles, making the Seine, um, you know, a place that you can swim, having cool, cooling spots, having public cooling areas, whether it's natural things like the river here in, in Texas, in Austin, we have a thing called Barton Springs, which is a big, um, spring that is dammed up into a big public pool that thousands of people go to on hot days, whether it's things like that or building, you know, what are called cooling centers, um, which can be, you know, kind of standalone buildings that people can get to or simple as um, keeping libraries and other public spaces open later on hot days. Here in Austin, we do a simple thing like on um, when the temperature gets above a certain degree, the buses are free so that people can get on buses and cool off if they don't have a cool place to go through. So there's a lot of first level things like that. We can do things like much better messaging about the risks. Um, we don't need to go into this, but there's a whole chapter in the book about the possibility of naming heat waves or at least ranking them the way that we rank hurricanes and typhoons and tropical storms. So they did that brilliantly in Europe this year. So in the heat yeah. wave in Southern Europe, um, God, what was it called? It was called, the second one was Charon, the, um, the guy who ferries people across the sticks. And the first was, 
Oh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong because I didn't do classics. So I went to a comprehensive school. Um, Cerberus, 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 the guardian yeah. of sticks in yeah. Hades and hell. And so they named them these fabulous, the Italians, gave them these fabulously evocative names. And then these horrific killer heat waves, terrible heat waves came in. But it meant yeah. that they, I mean, like, I mean, I'll be honest, as a journalist, it just gave you a brilliant hook that you could yeah. write. You know, it, it, like I'd always mention the names because they were so resonant. And it actually really helped communicate the, um, I mean, whoever it was, I think it was a guy at the Italian Met Office who just was like, these are great names. It's, and it, yeah. really, it really, it meant, it really kind of, um, it, it, you know, obviously, and this is what it does, it kind of personalizes the story. You identify with the heat wave because, you know, you remember that, you know, that, that you know, Cerberus heat wave. Um, very clever idea. Um, let What's me that? come back to, yeah, go on. Well, I just say some people were uh, have joked, uh, not uh, not entirely joking, that, that they should be named, you know, Heatwave Exxon Mobil or Heatwave BP. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, might that, even be that more is a really good. I'm going to pick you up on that. There are loads. Listen, guys, I will come to your questions. But one of my favorite bit, I mean, partly because I know the characters involved. There's a brilliant section in the book where you talk about climate attribution. That's when you probably everybody listening to this has noticed that now people like me say you know, the heat wave that hit Southern Europe was would be almost uh, impossible without the impacts of climate change. That is something that's happened over possibly, I mean, it's become commonplace over the last two or three years. It's something that we only began to do perhaps five years ago. And you, I, and I, you know, I mean, my failure, I hadn't just realised this was something actually done by British scientists. There's a, there's a really, I think the word is cussed that I'd use for Miles Allen, who's a climatologist at Oxford University and we we I mean I you know would always say well you know we you know I'd be asked so what does this weather event tell us about you know this heat wave tell us about um climate and I said well obviously you know you can't infer anything from a single weather event but um we know that you know that as climate uh you know as climate change progresses you know we'll have x y and z and we expect more heat waves and da da da, da. but I'd always separate the weather event from the the climate change story. It was like a kind of religious thing you had to do. And then, and Miles Allen was like, well, I just don't believe that we can't do this. You know, and he kind of paired up with this fabulous German scientist called Freddie Otto. And what happened? Well, they 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 began to question this assumption that you can't pair them up, that you that you can't really attribute, you know, any particular event to the changes in CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And they, you know, um, Freddie took Miles's work uh, and kind of ran with it, and has um, was one of several kind of leading climate scientists who who are able to not only attribute um, particular events to uh, to climate change, to rising to higher CO two levels, but to do it rapidly. They really believe in the importance for public messaging of doing it quickly. And so they got some funding and and they put together a team and um, they've been really effective at it. For example, uh, in the heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest in 2021 here in the United States, which was one of the first events where they were able to say, you know, you know, for all intents and purposes to kind of a factual degree that this could not have happened without the higher levels of CO2. And they basically do it by, you know, uh, running two different models, right? Do, you know, put it, inputting the information from the heat wave and then doing a kind of counterfactual with a different level of CO two in the atmosphere using it's a very sophisticated CO two level. Yeah, and, and it's a function of the ability, you know, of our of, of computing power that now we have right. computing 
capable of doing repeat iterations. They run the models again and again and again and again to get enough data to be able to say with certainty that you know give a give an estimate of probability of the different the events happening under different circumstances. But again, as a climate journalist, somebody who reports this stuff, that is an incredibly powerful tool for communicating. You know the point that you made right at the beginning of this that we need to understand the immediacy of this problem, and uh, it, it's a really powerful tool for communicating the immediacy of climate change because you can say things that happen here in Britain, that thing that happened to you two three days ago. Would have, was almost impossible without the effects of climate change. Um, but it's also, it's also really an important tool in litigation. I mean, because for the first time, you, you can say, the, okay, who's the Exxon, Exxon, but you know, um, uh, heat wave, right? But I mean, you know, uh, you know, you can look at, you know, is uh, CO two accumulates in the atmosphere and our warming is is you know um, something that is. Um, Historic emissions matter, but you could say ExxonMobil has contributed four percent of of CO two um, historically, so they're responsible for four percent of. I mean, this is hypothetically, but that's the world. That's where we're going, and that's why we're seeing the spawning of a lot of climate liability lawsuits, and and it, and it puts a different kind of spin on the loss and damage conversation that um, you know is. You know, we were talking about the COP earlier, and and that's such a central part of the COP conversation um, the, the, with the UN. The COP is uh, Jeff talking about the big climate conference that's coming up in Dubai, the COP twenty eight. Um, Glasgow was COP twenty six. Paris was COP twenty one. These are the series of UN climate talks, and it begins to really say, okay, well, who's responsible for this? Well, with this attribution stuff, you can begin to point to that. You can begin to say it's not just. You know, to use the famous phrase of Jim Hansen, you know, climate CO two did not just sort of load the dice on these extreme events. You could say, okay, this one was caused, and it's interesting because Freddie Otto and others have looked at some events like the floods in Pakistan last year that were so horrific and so damaging, and basically said, no, this was not driven by by climate change. This was within the range of natural variability, and this could well have, you know, this is not. Um, there's yeah. no kind of responsibility here in that sense. So, and this tool is only going to get better as time and computer power goes on. I'm going to quote you, Jeff. I asked, this is the end of the chapter, Anatomy of a Crime Scene, you've called the chapter. I asked Otto if she can manage, imagine a day in the near future when a company like ExxonMobil is held liable in a court of law for the deaths in an extreme heat wave. Yes, I can, she replied without hesitation. Not only can I imagine it, I believe it will happen sooner than you think. So that's a kind of indication of how confident the scientists are that they can make those links in a persuasive way. Just on that subject, this is really controversial science. You know, there are lots of people who don't want these kind of studies to be done. So they put the modeling out, obviously, for other scientists to peer review the modeling. The actual output of the models can't be peer reviewed because they need to get it out within days. But they, the models are robust. They've stood up to this incredibly sceptical kind of uh, forensic examination they've had. And the models have stood up. This is robust science, despite, you know, Miles Allen being told, you can't do it. They proved that they could. There's a really big question here, which I know I, Rosie will kill me if I don't ask this question. And that is, <laughs> how do we adapt our food systems? There's a great, another of the themes is, you know, how vulnerable plants are and how, again, that the effects of heat aren't linear. You know, it doesn't just get hotter, it gets hotter and drier. And if it's hotter and dark, drier, it actually gets even hotter. 
because there's nothing to absorb the heat. Water obviously is great at absorbing heat. So, you know, you get, you get again, a, a kind of exponential increase rather than a linear one. How do we adapt our food systems? Can we, can we just grow African crops here in Britain? How does it work? Yeah, that's a huge issue and a really important issue. And, you know, plants, crops, all living things are just like humans and that they have their Goldilocks zone. They have their zones that they thrive in. And if they, the temperatures get out of that zone, then they either have to move or die. It's very straightforward. And um, a lot of crops in around the world, I focused on the US in my book, but um, in many other places are at the edges of their thermal limits. And so in order to um, continue growing th these important crops, corn, wheat uh, are two that come to mind in many places that are at thermal limits, you have to imagine um, you know, basically one of two things happening, either genetically engineering, changing the 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 type of crop and the the the, the qualities of the crop to allow them to tolerate higher temperatures or um, moving them to somewhere else, right? And so there's a there's a lot of naivete around this, and I included myself in this before I started reporting the book. Is like, oh, well, we'll just move the you know crops north and we'll just, you know, in the US, we'll grow, instead of growing corn in Iowa, we'll grow it in Minnesota or something like that. And, and it just there will be this progression towards cooler places. And that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it because productivity of crops, ability for crops to thrive in certain climates is not just about temperatures, it's also about water, rainfall, soil, uh, you know, lots of things, quality of light, um, farther north you go, the, the changes the, the, the amount of light it gets during the day at different times of the year. So it changes the, that plants are very sensitive to that. So the idea that we're just going to move north is very simplistic. And also one of the things that I learned that was really fascinating to me um, is that, you know, I kind of had some half-assed idea that we would figure out a way to, you know, these these high producing food crops that I'm thinking of here, like corn and wheat are, are highly engineered already. And I thought, well, scientists are surely working on, you know, tweaking that gen that genome to make them more heat tolerant. And so I talked to a lot of scientists who are working on this and the, you can read more about it in the book, but the upshot of it is, is that heat is not a trait like blue eyes or, or something like that that you can just find two or three genes and tweak them and then everything is okay. It's so deeply interwoven to the in the genetic structure and impacts so much of what the plant is and how it functions that essentially there was no way that they're going to be able to, or no scientist that I met believes they're going to be able to sort of, you know, intentionally tweak the structures of these food crops to make them more tolerant for heat. It doesn't mean that there aren't types, varieties of wild corn somewhere in Mexico that nobody knows about or very few scientists know about that could do better in these places. But the food challenge is huge when it comes to extreme heat. Uh, because even what I'm talking about is like, you know, in the US, the most, you know, certainly one of the most agriculturally sophisticated regions of, of the world. And when you think, when you, you know, Think about the problems in places like Africa, where there is not that kind of intense research and experimentation with different crops. Um, the problems just amplify. And of course, what happens in and is so important in the climate story is this sense of cascading consequences, right? So food food crop failure begins to drive migration, which begins to drive 
all kinds of political issues. And it's it's just one of the major cascading effects that heat has in our whole climate system. I want to, we're getting close to the end. So I want to, there's quite a few, um, there's a couple of themes coming up. One's about the oceans and about ice. So what's heat doing to the oceans? Somebody says, um, there's a question about Antarctica. There's a uh, question about Greenland. Well, a statement, Greenland will come bouncing back up as its humongous ice cover melts. Um, there's a great section um, on where you go to Antarctica. You go up, you, you're actually, we, you, we, were, we were at different ends of a, of a massive uh, uh, British-American uh, collaboration to try and understand what's happening to this huge glacier in the Western Antarctic um, and uh, called Thwaites, about the size of the UK, um, which sits as a kind of keystone in the middle of the ice sheet. Um, I still can't conceptually get my head around the idea that there are separate glaciers within what is essentially just a block of ice. Um, but uh, but it, you know what I gather is that if Thwaites melts out, you know, kind of that's a death knell for the entire Western Antarctic. Western Antarctic is the smaller kind of sister to the East Antarctic, which sits on land. But the fact that the West Antarctic is largely sits on the seabed and very, very deep sea. In fact, the the uh, the, uh, the the seabed slopes backwards, slopes downwards towards the big mountain range uh, in Antarctica, um, which makes it particularly dangerous. Why does that downward sloping base make it so dangerous? And how worried should we be about ice melt in the Antarctic? I think here we can get a free plug in for your previous book. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I did write a previous book called The Water Will Come about sea level rise, but I had not been to Antarctica for that book. And um, this, this um, joint US British uh, research expedition that you and I both participated in was um, one of the most interesting journeys I've ever taken as a journalist and going to this remote part of Antarctica. I was on a ship, you were on the ice, correct? And, and yeah. uh, you know, what I was, the reason I was interested in this is because I really wanted to talk about, people say to me, why did you go to Antarctica, the coldest place on earth for a book about heat? And that makes no sense, but it makes a lot of sense because what I wanted to talk about was how even small changes in temperature can have huge implications. So to be brief about it, what's happening is the Southern Ocean has warmed by just a, you know less than one C from the, its historic average normal temperatures. But, but that one C has allowed um, this slightly warmer water to get underneath these, these large glaciers. Uh, we're talking about tipping points, and it's just warmed the ice enough to begin to begin melting it from the bottom. And because it has this downward slope that you described, once it gets the water gets over the lip, it starts to go downward, and it can spread underneath the ice sheet very quickly. And so, what's basically happening is this slightly warmer water, just a small change in the temperature of the Southern Ocean, has allowed this warmer water to get underneath the Waits Glacier and and the whole Western ice sheet and begin <laughs> melting it from below. And as it be as it melts from below, it destabilizes it. And and so the 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 potential in Antarctica is very different than. Greenland, which is basically melting like, you know, a, a popsicle on a summer sidewalk. It's just, you know, from the surface melt and it's you know, flowing out from that. What's happening in, in Antarctica is it's melting from below, fracturing the ice, and there's a potential of 
you know, catastrophic ice sheet collapse that these things can be, yeah, yeah, okay. fall into the ocean. So as it, as it mounts deeper, you've got a, an unstable body of ice above you, which then breaks and creates a huge cliff. And the cliffs are so high, they themselves are unstable. So they break. And as the as the cliffs break, it kind of the cliffs act as a break. The ice is 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 kind of one of these scientists described it as smooshing out. It wants to smoosh out, but it's a very it's effectively a liquid, but a very, very viscous one. And if you if you if you take away the sides of it, it flows a little bit more quickly. So you've got more ice flowing down, cliffs breaking off. The water going in underneath and you can see what they call a you know catastrophic as you say breakdown of the ice which could then deliver really significant increase in sea level rise um so yeah i mean go ahead the the well the the difference in the projections you know of sea level rise by the end of the century uh, are basically you know there's projections for the high end of one meter is you know the sort of basic ipcc projection but you know some scientists believe it could be two or three meters even and that that variability of what antarctic of, of what sea level rise will look like in the coming decades is almost entirely dependent upon uh what happens in the west antarctic ice sheet and so you know virtually the future of every coastal city in the world depends on the stability of the west antarctic ice sheet in the near term and it's hugely important tipping point and since we were there a couple of years ago, when we, I was reporting this book and you were there doing your reporting, the news has not been good. Um, you know, they have found more and more evidence of, of this fracturing and this um, melting from below. And, you know, as Richard Alley, one of the great ice scientists uh, in the world, um, uh, who's an expert in Antarctica and is not, he is, you know, not an alarmist, but is very alarmed, you know, said to me when I was trying to press him on how quickly this could happen, he said very memorably, you know, we don't know for sure because there's no human analog to this. We we have never seen a, a giant ice sheet collapse like this. We don't understand how this ice sheet collapse works in this way. And so that could be a good thing in the sense that maybe it will take longer than we anticipate, but there's also rich people like Richard. He said, we can't rule out three meters of sea level rise by the end of this century, which is- If you've got three I mean, meters of sea level rise, the rest is gonna go of West Antarctica. So the only, I mean, I'm I'm desperate now for some good news. The only kind of redeeming point of the West Antarctic is it's a kind of basin of ice that's separate from the rest of Antarctica. And so it contains, I think, a total of slightly over three meters, uh, five meters of, of, of potential sea level rise. But it wouldn't necessarily spread beyond there because it's bounded by these um, mountains, um, which should uh, contain it. But frankly, if if that's going at that rate, other stuff will be happening. There was actually just to sorry, just to compound the depressing news. There was actually a paper <laughs> two weeks ago that said we've already passed the tipping point. That even even cutting carbon emissions to zero now, yeah. it would be too late to stop that process happening which is a very depressing, I wasn't hoping, well, didn't want to end on such a depressing thought. I'm just going to look through. Um, I mean, what would you, so we're just reaching the end of this now, having spent all this time researching and writing the book, um, and, you know, as people who tap through this will know, there is some quite challenging and depressing content in there. Did you find anything that you could, you know, you found hopeful coming out of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I found a lot of things hopeful. I, I, one of the things I find hopeful is that, you know, when it comes to speaking again, just about heat is that, you know, 
it's very easy to prevent heat deaths. You know, it, it, there's a lot of things that we can do that do not cost much money, just like changing how we message, you know, how the media and, and emergencies, you know, governments and things like that, emergency services and governments message about heat. Uh, simple things, you know, like uh, tree planting and things like that can have a, a big impact. Simple things like calling your grandmother and making sure that her air conditioning is working and things like that. Just awareness can have a big issue. But I think the bigger thing that makes me really helpful, because everybody always asks me, as I'm sure they ask you, you know, I've been writing and reporting on climate change for almost 25 years. And people say, well, why don't you, why aren't you like living in your basement, swigging whiskey and scrolling on the wall with crayons, you know, about, you know, what is happening? this end? I was assuming that's what you'd be doing. <laughs> and I got a book out of it. Um, but I, I actually find it incredibly inspiring because I, 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 I meet every day um, on this book tour, especially people who are, you know, deeply engaged in rethinking our world. I think that this is a horrible crisis in which there will be you know, a lot of suffering and a lot of loss. But I also think that there's going to be a lot of really good stuff that comes out of this. We're going to think about how to build cities in a better way, in a more human way. We're going to think differently about where we get our food. We're going to think differently about where we get our energy. It's going to require massive changes. But I think that there's a, so many activated people who are deeply engaged in this. And, and so when I get up and on, you know, go out and give book talks and do my reporting, I get incredibly inspired all the time because I'm meeting all these amazing people who are thinking about this in all kinds of ways. And I just think that it, within this crisis is this enormous opportunity lurking for building a better world. And on that note, pull up the book, go out and buy it. It's a fascinating read. It really is compelling. Uh, you start reading it and you can't put it down. Don't you agree, Rosie? completely agree and that was just that was simply wonderful and I, I I really agree with you actually Jeff about that thing saying there are so many people out there doing extraordinary things and they will eventually all knit together to cause a transformation and um, so thank you so much for being here with us and thank you for your book and thanks to everyone who's listened thank you to Justin do get this book it's really uh, it's pretty life-changing the ideas that are in that it makes you look at things differently I'm glad we ended on that upbeat note and thank you again to our sponsors Keystone and um, I hope we do it again and anyway good night and thank you to you all bye-bye yes thank bye -bye. you thank you bye-bye